Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new episode of Stories from Space Podcast, where your host, Matthew Williams, examines the history of human spaceflight, the breakthroughs that revolutionized our understanding of the universe and our place in it, and the brave individuals who work tirelessly to advance the frontiers of our understanding. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. The authors acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the traditional unceded lands of the Lekwungen peoples. Hello and welcome back to Stories from Space. I'm your host Matt Williams and today I want to discuss yet another proposed resolution to the Fermi Paradox. Now those of you who are familiar with this show and with our ongoing segment on Fermi and the paradox that he raised will no doubt recall the anecdote surrounding this rather famous paradox, but for those who are not, or just for the sake of recapping, this arose from a conversation noted physicist Enrico Fermi had with colleagues at the Los Alamos Laboratory in 1950 when discussing the subject of extraterrestrial intelligence. And into this discussion, Fermi interjected with the question, where is everybody? And what he meant by that is, if, in fact, life is abundant in the universe, if the likelihood of intelligence is high, and we have every reason to believe it is, just statistically speaking, there's so much space out there, so much time, and the ingredients for life are everywhere, in abundance. So why don't we see indications of life and intelligent life in the cosmos? Why haven't we heard from it? Why haven't they visited And this became the basis for what is known as Fermi's Paradox, which has inspired a lot of proposed resolutions. And in previous episodes, we took a look at some of the more popular theories, and that included the possibility that extraterrestrial intelligence is being wiped out, possibly by some form of advanced self-replicating von Neumann probes or berserkers. There's also the possibility that we simply haven't heard from extraterrestrial intelligence yet because life is rare in the universe. There's also the possibility it's a question of timing, which may or may not be the result of intelligent life being prone to self-destruction, or that, in fact, any intelligent life that has passed evolution's test, that has survived past the point of overburdening their planet through overpopulation and environmental destruction, or species that have avoided destroying themselves with nuclear weapons, that they will invariably undergo a seismic shift in their evolutionary development and become so advanced that we would no longer recognize them as an intelligent species or civilization along the same lines of what we currently have here on Earth. Well, today, I wanted to address what is potentially one of the more frightening proposed resolutions. Arguably, the most frightening is the Berserker Hypothesis. Nobody likes the idea that there are self-replicating machines out there just waiting to destroy us as soon as we attract their attention. But this theory also has some rather chilling implications. It's known as the Dark Forest Hypothesis which takes its name from the novel The Dark Forest by famed Chinese science fiction author Liu Cixin, 
which was the sequel to his breakout novel, The Three-Body Problem, for which he won the Hugo Award in 2015, and the second installment in his Remembrance of Earth's Past trilogy. And the theory basically states that extraterrestrial intelligence is not communicating with the outside universe due to fear, paranoia, and what he called chains of suspicion. And whenever I think about this theory, I'm reminded of a scene in Star Trek where the character known as Q, he has just arranged for the crew of the Enterprise to meet the Borg, a very, very advanced and hostile species. He narrowly saves them, and he's trying to explain to him that this was all meant to teach you something about the dangers you face. And he said, if you can't take a little bloody nose, maybe you ought to go back home and crawl under your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. And Sushin certainly appreciated this logic. And in his book, he conveys this resolution there in the form of dialogue between two characters, including a sociology professor and a former astronomer. And one of them is visiting a grave, paying their respects. The other basically ambushes them there to talk about cosmic sociology. And at the heart of that is the idea of the Drake equation, that we can calculate the number of civilizations in the universe that we can communicate with based on various factors relating to star formation, planet formation, which of those are going to have habitable conditions, and so forth. And so, as I said, suppose a vast number of civilizations distributed throughout the universe on the order of the number of observable stars, lots and lots of them. Those civilizations make up the body of a cosmic society. Cosmic sociology is the study of the nature of this super society. And the character also states that for each and every one of these civilizations, two axioms must apply. One, survival is the primary need of civilizations, and two, civilizations continue to grow and expand while the total matter in the universe remains constant. So this is a recipe for conflict, ultimately, and it's similar to what Thanos had to say there in the Avengers series. We live in a universe of finite resources, but life keeps growing, so this inevitably leads to problems. But according to Shishin, the potential for conflict, this is something that all societies will be afraid of. And this is what's going to prompt them to not transmit their existence to space, to not attempt to communicate with each other in the way he likens it. He says, the universe is a dark forest. Every civilization is an armed hunter stalking through the trees like a ghost gently pushing aside branches that block the path and trying to tread without sound. Even breathing is done with care. The hunter has to be careful, because everywhere in the forest are stealthy hunters like him. If he finds other life, another hunter, an angel or a demon, a delicate infant or a tottering old man, a fairy or a demigod, there's only one thing he can do. Open fire and eliminate them. In this forest, hell is other people an eternal threat that any life that exposes its own existence will be swiftly wiped out. This is the picture of cosmic civilization. It's the explanation for the Fermi paradox. So, in other words, we're all wandering through this forest and we're seeking out resources, limited resources, which could be likened in this metaphor to animals and perhaps roots, tubers, fruits, all the things that 
we're likely to forage for and hunt for in order to sustain ourselves. And the odds of us running into another as we're doing this, it's bound to lead to confrontation because we don't know the other, we don't trust the other, and as he also goes on to explain, chains of suspicion will lead to mounting tensions between species. And the reason for that is because we live in a relativistic universe, there is an inherent delay on communications being sent back and forth. If it takes years, which even if we were communicating with the star system right next door, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri, if we were sending missions to that trinary system, it would take roughly four and a quarter years for a message to get there, another four and a quarter to get back. So that's eight and a half years for us to have a two-way conversation. And into all that silence, we will project our primal fears. And another thing that Sishin raises was the idea that, well, certain civilizations may be benevolent or malevolent, depending on a number of factors, which could include evolutionary or historical or cultural factors. Now, the very fact that some, even if it's one in a hundred, one in a thousand of these civilizations out there are in fact malevolent, then civilizations like this would be inclined to attack due to the desire for territory resources or just a predatory nature. Benevolent civilizations would not be likely to attack first, but feeling threatened, feeling threatened by the prospect that another civilization is malevolent, they may be forced to consider that it's best to adopt a shoot-first-and-ask-questions-later policy. And, of course, one need not be malevolent or benevolent in order for these considerations to arise. In all likelihood, an, an extraterrestrial civilization would be just like humanity. They'd be ambiguous, and they'd be prone to fear. And the prospect of other civilizations, knowing that they, too, are thinking these same things... They might be considering attacking out of fear that, too, is likely to prompt a civilization to contemplate violence and a first-strike policy. Another thing that Sishin raised was the idea of the technological explosion. Now, this idea is very much related to the technological singularity, that idea that such progress in the development of technology and innovation and the effects it has on a society... These are subject to exponential increases, or acceleration rather than linear progression. And given that we exist in a relativistic universe, once again, this plays a role, given that it would take far, far longer to reach another star system than to just communicate with it, that is going to deter civilizations, even highly advanced ones, from mounting a campaign, sending a flotilla to attack another star system because they would be aware that, well, by the time we arrived, that civilization could be far, far more advanced than when we left. We've been in transit this whole time, decades, perhaps even centuries, whereas our technology has not matured one bit along the way, theirs has exponentially. It's also possible a civilization would wipe itself out in that time, too, thus making the whole journey completely pointless. So under these circumstances, which are unique when dealing with interstellar travel and communication, Sishin concluded that any civilization would be likely to conclude that it's best to remain quiet, not reveal oneself, and explore space 
in a quiet manner and hope not to meet anyone. And going back to the metaphor of the dark forest, basically that means not turning on a flashlight, not lighting a torch. You would rather have these to see by, but you're fearful that in so doing, you will alert the predators or the other hunters and they will turn on you and fire. And similar appraisals have been made elsewhere in science fiction and scientific literature. Another example is The Killing Star, a science fiction novel by Charles Pellegrino and George Zembrowski, in which they argued that any intelligent species is likely to be motivated by fear when it comes to matters of potential threats and survival. This is a simple evolutionary development with which no life could ever survive and evolve. And also that a species capable of building spacecraft and achieving interplanetary flight and possibly even interstellar, they must possess a certain level of instinct for aggression and destruction. And this is due to the fact, looking at humanity as an example, that the biological imperative to survive by growing, by acquiring, by expanding, and by, yes, preparing for potential attacks, arming ourselves against potential threats, that has driven a lot of humanity's technological evolution. And there's also the cosmological principle, or Copernican principle, which states that neither humanity nor Earth are special, they're not in a privileged position, either in space or time. It's also known as the mediocrity principle. And so from this we must assume that Earth is not an outlier, humanity is not an outlier, our solar system is not an outlier, so if we are asking these types of questions when it comes to the potential for first contact, we have to imagine other species are as well. And that, too, is part of the whole chain of suspicion thing. Are they planning on attacking us? Are they going to strike first, ask questions later? Is that not something we would do? And so this theory raises a lot of implications for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and, more precisely, the field of messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, known by the acronym METI. It's also known as Active SETI. Now, METI has emerged in its own right in recent years, as SETI efforts have been reinvigorated by projects like Breakthrough Listen, and the instruments and methods, too, have really grown and matured, there is renewed interest in also messaging extraterrestrial intelligence or to compose a message that is going to be broadcast at some point. Humanity has already made several such projects, but they were all very modest compared to SETI. So on the balance sheet, the fact that we have been listening far more than we have been messaging really shows where our priorities are. And it also shows, and this has certainly come up a great deal in recent years in response to these renewed efforts, no attempts have been made, mind you, but there is a campaign on internationally to foster a discussion, and it's being led by the Medi Institute. And a lot of the reaction has been very mixed, which is to say... One of the main arguments that comes up in the discussion, to message or not, is would we be giving away our location and would we be making ourselves vulnerable to a potentially hostile extraterrestrial species? And the fact that that is one of the very first go-to arguments for many people 
It would indicate that maybe there's something to this dark forest hypothesis. Maybe the idea of broadcasting is inherently dangerous, and if an intelligent species is going to be asking that question, if it becomes a very easy point to make in any discussion regarding making contact, then we can expect that other intelligent species are going to be they may opt, as we have traditionally, to listen instead of transmit. Now, of course, there's still the matter of transmissions that we send out all the time. They're not directed to any particular star system or space. They're not focused or targeted. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, when we're talking about the brief window hypothesis, in order to really detect a message, in order to ensure that it, you detect something, you do need to aim your radio antenna towards the intended target and trust that receivers will be listening to your area of space at the time. But of course, there is still just transmissions that are being sent out by radio towers, television broadcasts, UHF antennas, and so forth. And that stuff trickles out into space and it propagates well through space, but it is itself difficult to pick up. So... So, just the very act of broadcasting with radio signals is not necessarily dangerous, but sending out targeted transmissions does raise that possibility. And to date, the most famous and the most robust METI experiment was the Arecibo message. And this was broadcast from the Arecibo Observatory in 1974, and it was composed by Frank Drake, the famed astronomer and SETI researcher who created the Drake Equation, and famed science communicator Carl Sagan, and of course, many colleagues. And Drake and Sagan, however, they were the ones who composed the visual message that was sent out. And it was designed in such a way as to be highly intelligible indicating intelligence, but at the same time relatively easy to translate, and at a frequency that was assumed, still assumed in fact, the same frequency as neutral hydrogen, that an extraterrestrial species would be able to pick up. And when they picked up this transmission, they would note the structure of it, which would differentiate it from the background signal created by the absorption of radiation by neutral hydrogen. This message was aimed at the star cluster M13, 21,000 light-years from Earth, and that was selected because it's believed to be a good bet that a civilization would emerge in a place like that. The only other METI efforts, they were mounted between 1999 and 2016. There's only a handful, and they were all privately or funded by nonprofit groups. And none of them had the power or sophistication of the Arecibo message. Breakthrough Listen has also been working on a project known as Breakthrough Message. And there's an incentive competition behind that to create messages that we would want to send to space. However, none of these have been broadcast yet. As I said, much like the Medi Institute, the Breakthrough Message campaign... Nothing is going to be done until there is a very thorough discussion and a decision is made as to whether or not it's worth it or even safe. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention also the Pioneer plaques in the Voyager Golden Records. And these were mounted on the Pioneer 10 and 11 mission and the Voyager 1 and 2 space probes. And these two were crafted by Carl Sagan. And the idea was that someday 
It was always known that these probes would be venturing beyond our solar system. They were sent to the outer solar system to learn more about the gas giants and their moons. And they revealed a wealth of information, which has been the subject of a lot of follow-up missions since. In some cases, though... And now, as they are pushing their way into the interstellar medium, it is understood that at some point, an extraterrestrial intelligence may find these. And although that will take thousands, tens of thousands of years before they actually reach another star system, it was also theorized that, in fact, humanity may be the first to find them. Later generations may come upon them as we begin to explore out of space. And then, in that respect, they'll be more like a time capsule. But the intent of them was basically to say, here we are. And they included pictographic indications of where Earth is. So, there too. If anyone found this and was looking to wipe out potential competition, they might find these plaques and records rather useful in that respect. Now, like all proposed resolutions to the Fermi Paradox, there are some issues or weaknesses to this argument that... Invite counter-argument. And once again, I am forced to bring up David Brin's 1983 essay, The Great Silence, The Controversy Concerning Extraterrestrial Intelligent Life. Now, he argued when addressing the Berserker hypothesis, he said that it would only take a single malevolent race willing to break its self-imposed silence to create the deadly probe scenario in which they dispatch von Neumann probes, the self-replicating machines that go out about in the cosmos and destroy potential threats. Basically, intelligent life, they'll seek it out and destroy it. But looked at from a slightly different angle, this argument can be applied to the dark forest hypothesis, in that no species is likely to send a fleet out to attack another because the attacker will not have advanced or progressed while in transit, well, that's a perfect reason for developing berserker probes. You create machines that are capable of self-replicating and upgrading themselves and turning them loose. And as Bryn argued, it only takes one species to do that. For one civilization out there to either succumb to fear or to embrace its malevolent impulses and send out such probes, and the dark forest hypothesis is essentially nullified. Also, the very idea that it only takes one. The same logic applies rather neatly to this idea that intelligent species would opt for a self-imposed silence. At the end of the day, only one species needs to break that silence, and suddenly, the great silence is dead. If, in fact, someone is willing to speak first, then it's likely that some intelligent species will try to answer them. And, of course, the very idea that a species would be unified in its intent and its purpose, and that would remain consistent over time. Once again, looking at our own history of SETI versus METI, we know that we've conducted METI experiments. And many of us still plan to. So, it's not as if there's any consensus on this point. For example, we were to hear from an intelligent species tomorrow, saying, Is anybody out there? We want to talk. There would certainly be a very fierce debate about should we answer, and what should we say if we do happen to do this. And let's assume there was a general consensus that, no, it's not worth it, it's too risky. Can we honestly expect that all the nations of the world, all the 
well-connected entrepreneurs, all the nonprofits, and all the scientists would agree to this? Would there not be some who would want to reach out and communicate because they foresaw some advantage? I mean, the chains of suspicion and concern about what the other person will do, maybe we should do it first, that applies to messaging, I would say. It would apply to different nations of the world viewing each other with suspicion. Who's going to be the first to make contact with extraterrestrials and who will stand to benefit? And that's sort of a very ironic thing about the remembrance of Earth's past trilogy. In the first book, The Three-Body Problem, this is precisely how everything begins. He has a, I don't want to give too much away here, but he has a historic treatment of how SETI experiments began in China, and this is factual, as part of an effort in the Soviet Union and China and other communist nations they did not want to be left behind. They knew that such experiments were happening in the West, and they believed that whoever makes first contact with an extraterrestrial civilization will have the advantage of speaking for Earth and could be privy to new technologies, and we don't want that to be Western nations. And that may be difficult for some to understand today in the post-Cold War atmosphere, but yes, at the time it was a very real consideration. And so, for these and other reasons, the desire to be first, the desire to learn from a potentially more advanced species, just sheer curiosity, and the fact that somebody has broken the silence, somebody needs to respond, all of these constitute potential holes in the Dark Forest hypothesis. And it does bring up another possibility, though, which is that the message itself may be the weapon. Given the amount of time it would take to reach another star system, even where self-upgrading probes were concerned, certain species may decide that instead of sending out weapons that are relativistic in nature, that are unable to travel faster than a small fraction of the speed of light, that maybe the best thing would be to send messages loaded up with some kind of malicious software or viruses. And this has also become a growing consideration in an age of the internet and cyber warfare and hackers and the notable effects that such well-trained and motivated individuals, the kind of harm that they can do and how this is something that governments frequently do to each other as well. That is another very important question, and it has inspired a lot of research that has indicated that, well, if we are going to be listening for messages, we should be taking care to monitor them, to scan them, to inspect them very closely, because you never know. There might be something in there designed to completely infiltrate our systems and shut everything down, thus leaving us vulnerable to an attack. But, of course, that raises a whole bunch of counterpoints in its own right. And given the fascinating nature of the theory itself, it's really worthy of its own whole podcast. It's really worthy of its own proposed resolution that maybe aliens are not listening because they fear malicious messages. But we'll save that for another time. In the end, the Dark Forest Hypothesis has the same issue as all the other proposed resolutions. It's subject to the limited frame of reference we have, and it's also subject to the only-takes-one rule. 
It only takes one species to break the pattern in order for that theory of why we're not hearing from other intelligent species to be rendered null and void. We end up in the territory that says, well, messaging is difficult, detecting signals is difficult, we may not be looking in the right places or in the right ways, it could just be that our timing is wrong, or that we simply haven't heard from anyone yet, but if we keep listening, we're likely to. We don't know. And so we keep listening, and maybe, quite possibly, in the near future, we will send additional messages. And depending on what we find, we'll either expand our frame of reference, we'll know that, okay, we tested this, so we know that's not a promising avenue of research, Let's go investigate others. Basically, we will further constrain the search. And no matter what, the results are bound to be very, very interesting. And these efforts, they are and will continue to parallel the investigations into unidentified aerial phenomenon, looking for technosignatures within our own solar system, looking for either active or derelict examples of technology that did not come from Earth. All of that is going to be happening in the near future, very near in some cases, and and the kind of insights and potential discoveries that will come from that, they will be at least deeply fascinating. We will be able to learn more about the universe in which we inhabit because of them. At most, they will be earth-shattering providing the first hard evidence that we're not alone in the universe. And I invite you to stay tuned for the next episode in which I sit down with Professor Abraham Loeb of Harvard University and we discuss the Galileo Project and his controversial theory that the interstellar object of Muamua may have actually been an extraterrestrial probe or a piece of a derelict spacecraft that passed through our solar system. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I'm Matt Williams, and this has been Stories from Space. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Space podcast with Matthew Williams. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.